I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. I think we are trendsetters. We had an episode on cinema and then there were two articles in The Guardian about cinema issues. It's all off the back of our episode. One was about blockbuster or bladderbuster, as it was called. Mm, you sent this to me. It's a, it's a really interesting point made in an op-ed piece by Phil Hode, who argues for the reintroduction of intermissions, given how long yes. films are these days. Batman, I think, is is nearly three hours long. Uh, there was an Avengers film that was more than three hours long. The most recent James Bond film was knocking up against three hours. So I'm, I'm all for it. I, I thought, well, I was about to say, I thought in advance you would definitely be for it. Yeah, I struggled to get through a whole film. And if I knew there was an interval coming, I could probably get that. There used to be intervals. And he said, he said in the piece that the last film done with an interval in 1982. Was it, was it Gandhi? That's a long film from memory. I'm not sure I'm very in favour of these intervals. Why not? I don't know, really. We were talked on the cinema episode about the experience of going to the pictures, immersing you in a film. Is it that it takes you out halfway through, out of that world? Well, don't you think there's a sort of staggering, staggered toilet break issue, which is sort of easier to... At least while the film's going on, it's sort of staggered. Oh, you're talking about cues... Yeah, maybe. You are, uh, or pre-pandemic, were an avid theatre-goer. Do you not enjoy an interval at the theatre? I do, yeah. So, to me, when I buy a ticket to a play, the worst words I can see in the programme are no interval. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I think, okay, I think you've shaken me out of my conservatism. I think you're probably right. And then the other thing you sent to me was an article by the very funny Stuart Heritage, yes. condemning, even though we heard last week that it is okay to take your own food into a cinema, he condemns people who do it. Well, you know, it's funny because I felt there was permission given on last week's episode to do it. I mean, I didn't actually take food, but Justine took some carrots and olives so we didn't eat the children's popcorn. You had a little tapas. Well, I wouldn't quite go that far. Array of containers. Yeah, two containers, I think. Wasn't very satisfying. I still stole their popcorn, actually, in truth. <laughs> so, I, I mean, it, it probably sort of attenuated the popcorn theft. But I felt less guilty about it because I felt like one of our guests last week had said, yes, it's absolutely fine. Because he argues in this piece that independent cinemas have been through a lot. And by taking your own food, right. you're hitting them where it hurts. Okay. But I had an idea of how to fix that. Go on. Something like... Corkage in bring your own booze restaurants. Ah, so you pay an entry fee for your olives. Yes, exactly. Two adults, two children, and some olives. Yeah, please. So you pay per olive. There weren't. We didn't actually bring many olives, so that was one of the disappointments. So you'd have been fine then. They wouldn't have raised much on the olive levy. No, it's the olive levy. Okay, well that's that's yeah, that's a good point actually. 
Honestly, we, you and I should have our own cinema <laughs> together in my constituency. <laughs> I can see us. How long do you think we'd last? Five minutes. It sounds like a Channel 5 reality show waiting to happen, it doesn't does. it? Ed Miliband sets up his own cinema. With Jeff Lloyd. I think I'd look good in an Usher's uniform, one of the little hats. What with both of our levels of anxiety, I think we'd be kind of it'd be quite a lot of. That's what they want, isn't it? When they make these shows, they don't want people who are as cool as a cucumber who manage to get things running smoothly. Yeah. They want to see you on the edge of some kind of breakdown, which I think we would be within probably minutes. Fundamentally, I'm not sure it would be good for our relationship. Would you let me play the organ before the feature? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what do we call the cinema? Jeff and Ed's. Yeah, yeah. I think you've uh, you've gone for the low hanging fruit there. <laughs> Okay, well, look, we'll take it under advisement. It sort of sits on the shelf along with the Make Your Own Sandwich shop. That could be the food offering at our cinema. Well, I was actually thinking you were going to say that when you were getting onto your corkage. Mm. Should we say uh, what we're talking about? Yes, we're talking about rivers. Take me to the river. Rolling on the river by the rivers of Babylon. Are you going to give us any? Cry me a river. Cry me a river. There you go. Anyway, this week we're talking about rivers and what's happening to clean them up. Rivers are such an important part of the landscape, ecosystems and communities. They provide two-thirds of our water supplies and support a vast array of wildlife, but they're in bad shape. Only 14% of our rivers pass the bar for ecological health, and farming, the water industry and the climate crisis are all making things worse. To find out more and hear what is being done to protect and preserve our rivers, we're joined by Alistair Chisholm from the Chartered Institute of Water and Environmental Management, Christine Colvin from the Rivers Trust, and Alec Taylor from WWF. So what's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is perhaps the nerdiest account that I follow on Instagram is documenting the rebuilding of the locks in the centre of Stockholm. That's impressive. Where the, the, the lake Melleran meets the Baltic Sea. Well, that is impressive. It is impressive. Anyway, this is a huge project and has been going on for years and will continue to do so. I was looking at it this morning and it explained that this one particular part of the lock, which is very old, it's called Niels Eriksson's lock and it goes back to the um, middle of the 19th century. Because it's protected, they can't rebuild it. So they are turning it into, and I think this just sounds delightful, and it might be a quirk of translation, but I'm enjoying it anyway, a fish path. You see, it's interesting you should say that because we got some work done on rivers in my constituency and it was called Fish Pass. And it's a wet place for them to pass. Yeah, basically. I bet it's the, it's the same, same thing. thing. So you've got these big boats going through the locks and there's a lot of traffic around and and then there'll be the separate channel for the exactly, fish. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, isn't that great? Exactly. I love it. I love it when they build little tunnels under roads for hedgehogs to go through. And I think this is sort of a fish equivalent. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes. Okay, I'm I was a bit slow on the update yes. there. Yeah, fish paths. The yeah. Slucen fish path. Well, that's a good reason to be cheerful. Absolutely. What's yours? Well, mine is, I think I mentioned it the other week, but it sort of graduated to a reason to be cheerful, which is we finished watching the Adam Kate, this is going to hurt, dramatisation with Ben Whishaw. I mean, it is really good. It, it conveys so well the demands and the scale of decision-making and weight on the on the shoulders of people who work in the NHS, I think. I mean, it conveys the stress and the anxiety really well, but also the sort of consequential nature of their decisions. I'm surprised you haven't watched it. Funnily enough, Sarah and I were talking about it last night, and I really, uh, I really want to watch it on your recommendation. She, uh, she I feel, holds you in less high regard and... Uh... She, she, she doesn't care that you've been um, so effusive about it. You're listening to Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to start by talking to Alistair Chisholm, who is Director of Policy at Chartered Institute of Water and Environmental Management. Hello, Alistair. Hi there, Jeff. Hi, Ed. Hi. Thanks for um, taking the time to talk to us. And I just want to say at the outset, we, we're very much pro-river. On this podcast, we're not, we're not, we've got nothing against rivers. Yeah, we're, we're on the side of rivers, but I'll be honest in that I haven't thought about them deeply, no pun intended, really since GCSE geography. So, did you think about them a lot in GCSE geography? They came up a lot. So, for, for anyone like me, can you give us a kind of basic refresher course, a, a brief on the role rivers play in our life and landscape here in the UK? 
Yeah, sure. So rivers really are absolutely integral to our society, our economy and our culture, I guess. They have a huge impact on our landscape first off. So going back into the mists of time, they've formed much of that landscape. They've carved out valleys. They've formed fertile floodplains. And so many of the, the kind of great cities in the world are built on great rivers and, and countless more smaller villages, towns, cities also, because they've been so central and so important to our ability to thrive and, and kind of grow as communities. They provide us with water, obviously, to drink, but also to, to support farming. They also are a, a source of food in themselves through fish and wildfowl and so on. They've been really important providers of power in the past, driving mills and factories. They've been vital transport arteries. You know, boats were crucial in transporting bulk goods. And the floodplains of rivers are often the richest, most productive land that we have to farm as well because of the sort of silt and alluvial material that uh, are contained on, on floodplains. And you know, just thinking globally, the, the greatest river on the planet, the Amazon, it, it drains the basin and the rainforest that is the, the lungs of the planet. So they're absolutely critical. And the, the benefits that they bring to us are really reliant on their overall health. Um, and if that health declines too much, then we will start to lose the benefit that drew us to them in the first place. And a wider point here is that when we talk about rivers, we shouldn't talk about the water that's just in that channel. We should talk about everything that's going on in the land around it, in its catchment. That's a really good description. How important are they in our sort of human-made kind of infrastructure, like reservoirs, sewers, and so on? How, how big a part of the process are rivers to, to all of our functioning of water and so on? Well, there's two sides, at least two sides to that. Uh, firstly, the, the kind of water supply side, they're a really critical source of, of water for us to, to drink and, as I said, to support things like um, agriculture for food production. They have also been heavily used, essentially, as, as waste disposal routes, particularly, you know, going back in the past, they were effectively used as sewers. Back in 1858, we had the, the Great Stink, which presaged the uh, development of the London Sewer Network because politicians couldn't stand the smell anymore and that was the point at which they stopped being that waste disposal route and I think that was a point where we really reflected on the fact that they shouldn't be that they shouldn't have that purpose they should be there as a resource for for both us as people and wildlife as well. So so then if we think about because there has been this decline in the in the quality of rivers is is this not a new problem. If you're talking about sewers and then the industrial revolution, and now we're we're seeing the quality of the river affected by modern agriculture methods, is this actually not a problem of today, but a problem of modern society? I would say it's always been there as a problem. I think the nature of the problem has changed. So back in the day, you know, we had a lot of heavy industry, a lot of effluent pipes coming out of those factories and out of sewage treatment works and whatever. And we had what we call point source pollution, end of pipe pollution. You can see where it's coming from. So, you know, tackling it quite readily. The kind of challenges that we have now. So when it rains, rain falls on all kinds of surfaces on the land. Anything there that's kind of nasty pollution will get washed off. And that runoff will ultimately end up in the river. And we're seeing a lot more of that kind of pollution now. It's what, what we call diffuse pollution. And that comes, as you said, from, from agriculture, all of the kind of slurry, pesticides, nutrients washed off fields, but also off our urban surfaces as well. So it's, it's much more difficult to tackle. And water companies play a role in this as well in terms of the waste generated. Yeah, they do. I mean, obviously, that's come under the spotlight a lot recently because people have been very concerned about the sewage pollution that's become apparent over the past couple of years. But water companies are not the only source of pollution in our rivers. They have a big job to do to clean up their act. They're kind of the obvious party. There's a whole range of, of other parties, including just us as, as citizens and the way that we act and behave, that does actually have 
an impact on rivers. And it's very easy to feel quite a deep connection with the environment when you're down by a river. They're majestic and powerful and, and quite inspiring features. When you're not next to them, they're out of sight and out of mind. But that whole process that I described about water running off and, and into them ultimately, it, it's always there. And it, there's so many aspects of our lives that, that do impact on, on them through that process. So yeah, there's a whole range of people that have to play a part in cleaning it up. Can you talk to us a bit about how river habitats for wildlife have been impacted by what you've described? So if we think about agriculture for a start, nutrients are a, a big problem. So nitrates and phosphates that are put on farmland to, to help plants grow. Some of that is washed off into rivers and obviously it helps plants grow in, in the rivers. Now, often those are the wrong kind of plants and, and um, those plants, when they die, they can effectively, as part of the, the process whereby they break down, they, they soak up the available oxygen in the water, which deprives other organisms in the water body of the oxygen they need. So that can be really impactful there. In uh, Some of the urban pollutants can be directly toxic to ecology. Um, so again, the, the diverse and diffuse nature of the pollution means that it impacts on wildlife in a whole range of different ways. And also there's a really strong amenity factor here as well, which impacts how people see and feel and use rivers and, and really value them. And when I was looking through all the information ahead of this conversation, I, I saw this fact and I'd, I'd love to know more about it. Uh, England is home to 85% of the world's total uh, number of chalk streams. Now, this sounds incredibly impressive, but I don't know what a, a chalk stream is or w why that's important. It's a stream of chalk. It's not a stream of chalk. It's a stream of incredibly pure water. And the reason why it's incredibly pure is because the rainfall falls on chalk geology Percolates, it's very porous. It, it percolates through the chalk and the chalk essentially filters it and makes it very nutrient rich. But they're really, really precious and we have to look after them. What is the accident of geology, which means we have 85% of them? I think it's just where there is a huge kind of deposit of chalk. There's a few, I think, in, uh, in France and Holland um, as well, but it's, it's around where you've got the white cliffs. How much bandwidth is the government currently giving rivers? So I think I'm right in saying they fall under the remit of DEFRA, which is Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. Sure. Um, wh where are they up to on this? And you know, how, how could we be doing better? It's something that really has come to the forefront of government focus in the last two, three years. There's various reasons for that. One is because we've, if you just take sewage pollution as, as a case, we've known it's a problem for a while. Now, the data that those are feeding back has really come online in the last couple of years, and it's been published. The media has got hold of it and started pushing it out to the public. And the numbers involved are really quite shocking. You know, you've got hundreds of thousands of incidences of these discharges and over 3 million hours, I think, of discharge in, in um, 2020. And that kind of coincided with the pandemic when people couldn't travel. They wanted to make use of their local environments more. We happen to have a really nice spring and summer, I think. So the, the attraction of um, getting wet in, in the British environment was possibly quite an unusual pastime for a lot of people suddenly became attractive and people went out they looked and they saw the state of their local rivers at the same time campaigners were really pushing it and it, it became a, a voter issue I think at, at that point and so as a result government is suddenly taking it really seriously let's get on to the question we've been desperate to ask which is what's your favorite river well I spent a lot of my childhood on the Norfolk Broads so it's going to have to be one of those rivers. And I think I would say it's the River Wensum because it's a really pretty, beautiful river. It's probably of all of those rivers in that area. It's got the best, most abundant wildlife. But the thing that struck me when I, when I was a kid, I, I used to go fishing. And I used to think of myself as not a bad angler. And, and I would catch a few tiddlers. And that was about it. And... I would read about how much 
fish used to be caught by anglers back in kind of the 1800s. And they would catch hundreds and hundreds of these really big fish, seemingly with complete ease. You don't think they were lying, do you? There were photos, Jeff. I mean, or maybe sketches if we're going back to the 1800s. But, um, yeah, it was that point that I, I really thought, hmm, I, there's something not quite right here. You know, we've let So that's these... where it all started yeah, for you? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Well, Jeff and I, should we go and sit on the banks of the River Wensum? I recommend it. Yeah, yeah, I think I think we should. Like Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. <laughs> well, look, Alistair Chisholm, it's been great to talk to you. Thanks so much. No, thank you very much. It's been great. So we're joined now by Christine Colvin, who is Director for Partnerships and Communications at the Rivers Trust. Christine, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Let's talk about the scorecard of UK Rivers from the Rivers Trust. It doesn't make for very good reading. Just 14% of rivers pass the bar for good ecological health. Can you tell us perhaps what's gone wrong? The government tries to assess exactly what's going wrong and which sectors are impacting our rivers, um, particularly in terms of water quality. So at the moment, we know that the biggest reason for failure for good ecological health around the country is because of pollution from agriculture. And then the other big contributor to water pollution is what's happening and what's going wrong with our wastewater treatment. Um, So that's all the water that we're using that comes out of our houses and then goes off to the sewage treatment plants. And things like microplastics that come out of our washing machines, wastewater treatment plants really struggle to deal with a lot of those contaminants. And also there's the sewage that doesn't even get into the wastewater treatment plant that ends up overflowing through what are called combined sewer overflows. And that's a mix of rainwater and raw sewage water that ends up in our rivers. And that's untreated sewage. And of course, there's been a lot of concern about that recently as we've been getting better and better data to see how bad that problem is. And how much is all this an inevitability of modern life, both in terms of urbanisation, more people living in towns and cities, population growth, industrialization. Is it something to some extent we have to resign ourselves to? I don't think so. And I think that's at the Rivers Trust, we're really pushing for a lot of the the changes that we want to see and different solutions being implemented to these problems. If we look at farming, there are so many interventions that could be introduced much more widely to protect our rivers and to manage waste much better, um, particularly from livestock and intensive poultry farming. How does you know one more poultry farm stack up, given that we've already got a really polluted system there? So from the planning perspective, we could be doing much better planning. And you're saying is it an inevitable part of being a highly urbanised society, you know, we need to really look at how do we soften and green our urban areas so that we can re-naturalise and relocalize the water cycle and start treating it differently and reintroducing all the benefits that we used to get from having lots of, you know, little ponds and wetlands all around our countryside. So many of those have been lost. We've lost the biodiversity that went with them. And we've lost that diversity of habitat that has happened as a result of urbanisation and huge monoculture, agriculture. But we know that so we can think more intelligently about how how we're going to rewild our countryside, how we're going to redesign our cities so that we can bring nature and climate resilience back into the equation. And what's an example of that, Christine, that we would be doing that, that, that for our listeners that could make a difference? I think even small things like if we look at stormwater. So, you know, when it rains, we've got very we've got a lot of hard pavements, driveways, roads, everything that results in water, then funneling into stormwater drains, overwhelming the sewage treatment plants and ending up in a whole lot of dirty, polluted water ending up in our rivers. At the household level, if we could start implementing many more soakaways and looking at ways to keep that stormwater out of the drains, but using that to create local wetlands, 
to replenish aquifers, the underground water that we rely on in many areas of the country. Um, if we could start reintroducing those at the local and neighbourhood level, what's called sustainable urban drainage, which uses swales, wetlands, ponded areas that slows the flow and brings it back to where the rain fell, um, allow nature to participate in filtrating and slowing that flow. Those are really nice examples of things that we'd like to see much more of. Can you just tell us a little bit about how rivers have been affected by the climate crisis? I mean, obviously, we're more vulnerable to climate-related weather events, mm. but what, what, are, what are we seeing in the rivers themselves as a result of the climate crisis? There are three main impacts. Obviously, we're seeing, because there's a, a higher intensity in rainfall events, for every degree temperature increase, every degree Celsius that, we, that the atmosphere is hotter, it can hold 7% more water that's evaporated. So that means that as the climate gets hotter, the intensity of our rainfall events is going to be much higher. We're going to see more rainfall falling more quickly. And that results in a lot more getting washed off the land surface and into our rivers, as well as more floods as well. Of course, climate change, because of the higher temperatures, results in higher evaporation. And in some parts of the country will also result in more droughts. That's where we need to be really paying attention to how efficiently we're using the water we have and how are we storing it for what we expect to be longer periods of drought. And then in terms of the temperature of the water itself, pollution problems are exacerbated at higher temperatures. So where I live, there's a lake near to me that always, and it's already happening now at this time of year, Normally, a little bit later into late spring, we would start seeing an algal sludge forming on the top of this lake as a result of the nutrients that are in there, the nitrates and phosphorus. But that sludge forms more at lower levels of concentration earlier when the temperatures are higher. So hotter water bodies and hotter water in, in rivers, even by less than a degree Celsius, has a big impact on the local ecology. With the pollution that you've talked about, uh, waste from water companies, with agricultural practices, has, has that worsened in recent times? If I was to go back to when I was a boy at my local river, the, the River Bolin, like 30-odd, 40 years ago, mm. would, would that be much different there's a big debate at the moment going on in the scientific community about are our rivers getting better or worse. The general trends seem to be that what we call point sources of pollution, so particularly pollution from wastewater treatment works and from industry, are less. And so pollution from urban sources and from industrial sources are less, and also because we, we have less industrial activity now in the UK. But pollution from agriculture in, in many parts of the country has got worse. Is that modern farming methods? Yeah, a lot of that is linked to the, the, the intensification of farming and modern farming methods, the use of particularly fertilisers um, and, and pesticides as well. So we've now got a much better understanding, but we, we haven't yet had a kind of stable baseline where we can say... It was worse five years ago or better five years ago because we're getting more and more data in um, all the time. And I know you kind of touched on this a little bit in the overview at the top, but what are the corrective steps? I think there's a lot that's come out from the policy directions recently from government, from things like the, the Descripta review as well, that talks about starting to make sure that new priorities are taken into account particularly around bringing back nature and allowing nature to recover both in our urban areas and in our countryside. I think it's the way that we've been making decisions up until now, particularly in the water sector, um, short-term value for money for customers and efficiency have been the kind of overriding principles against which um, decisions have been made. And we're starting to see a bit of a shift in that we need to start building for much longer term climate resilience and for a longer term recovery of our natural environment, because we're not going to survive much longer at the rate of decline that we've seen. 
but also this, this view of how do we start building more green infrastructure, more living infrastructure, more of the nature-based solutions in our towns and in the countryside um, that can help both nature to recover, us to be more climate resilient, and to improve the quality of the water in our rivers so that nature can thrive again. Christine, on this podcast, I have bored Jeff Rigid by talking about, and my and our listeners, by talking about my cold water swimming, which is actually in a pond. Great. It's actually in a pond, it's in a pond not a river. And uh, Jeff has been relatively patient and tolerant, as I've boasted about my cold water swimming. We haven't really talked so far with you about the role our rivers can play in our leisure, health and, yeah. and well-being. Are, are they underused in that respect? I think they are currently underused. And in fact, last week we had um, our annual conference and a very interesting discussion between the different recreational groups, because I think rivers have for a long time been the territory of fishermen. But more and more recreational users are demanding better access to our rivers, um, more widespread access, and also then a better quality of river to play in um, and to enjoy and to relax in. So, you know, the benefits are pretty well documented. Access to healthy blue space as well as healthy green space really helps our mental health and well-being and our physical health as well. And we really welcome the, the wild swimming and the open water swimming movement that kicked off during the pandemic, really, when the gyms were closed. So we'd love to see more access to healthy open water swimming areas. We're really pushing for a much greater ambition on the designation of inland bathing waters. We have something on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, Christine, which is a utopia where all the ideas that you've talked about can flourish. If Jeff appointed you as, a, as the river's minister, what would you do on day one? I think what I'd love to do on day one is to launch a new subsidy for landowners um, that would help them to set aside land or do what they needed to do to let the river banks recover. So by building a healthy natural buffer brimming with biodiversity next to our rivers, that automatically protects them from some of the, the sort of dirty runoff that's getting into them, starts shading them, giving that temperature protection during climate change if, if um, indigenous trees are planted back there, um, and also then provides a connected network through these arteries of our healthy landscapes that helps nature everywhere recover and start rebounding and, and building back a beautiful British countryside. Sounds good to me, Jeff. Absolutely. She's got the job. Thank Christine, you. Uh, it's been brilliant to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Lovely to chat to you both as well. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Finally, we have with us Alec Taylor, who is Head of Climate and Land Use, uh, the Climate and Land Use Programme from WWF. Hello, Alec. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Ed. Thank you for, for coming on. I guess this is the third act. So we've heard about the perilous state that our rivers are in, and now the triumphant ending is to come from you. I mean, really what we're after is, is a shot of optimism. I mean, is there any? Can it get better or are we past the point of no return? We're never past the point of no return, Jeff. I, I'm an eternal optimist, despite working in the environmental sector for 15 years. You know, you need that idealism, I suppose, to, to get you through the job sometimes. Um, I've seen myself how rivers can bounce back if they're allowed to. You know, I, I spent many years um, living and working in Cardiff, for example, along the banks of the River Taff, um, hearing stories about how bad the water quality was there you know, uh, with all the, the coal deposits that are flowing down from the valleys and, and now seeing kingfishers and salmon leaping up the weir in, in the city centre. You know, it shows that rivers, if they're allowed to, can do amazing things once again. And why was why did that happen, Alec? Well, essentially, it was a combination of the industries declining naturally, which meant that the inputs into the rivers were declining from the, the, the areas in the South Wales valleys, but also better you know, better management of the uh, the sewage outflows and things like that. Those are combined efforts. We know that rivers are resilient ecosystems. Um, we know that actually pollution into rivers is is kind of, I would suggest, the most visible form of things like greenhouse gas emissions or reducing wildlife. You know, the fact that as we're putting this stuff into the rivers, we're also reducing these, we're also producing and releasing large quantities of greenhouse gas emissions so we know we need to do a lot about it when it comes to things like net zero when it comes to restoring our wildlife in general um, so actually if we can join some of this stuff up in a bit more detail we can actually produce quite a positive vision whereby you know housing developers and water companies and farmers all feel like they're contributing towards something in a, in a coherent way and i think that that movement is starting to come together now i'm i'm you know, I've been inspired by the wild swimming clubs and the, you know, the, the sea bathers and others who have, have come together to call for action in recent months. Um, so I, I'm, I'm still optimistic, Jeff. Uh, you know, I hope, I hope to be so in, in six to 12 months time. That is good. Let's get on to the idea of nature based solutions. Can you explain quickly what that means and then give us some examples of how that can be applied to our rivers? Yeah. So nature based solutions are essentially using nature to help us. Uh, with some of our societal problems. So that could be capturing carbon. It could be stopping flooding. So, for instance, you know, if you restore the peatlands in your upland areas of the Yorkshire Dales, for instance, it will stop the water flowing as quickly into the downstream settlements and causing flooding. Uh, you've got wetlands, salt marshes, um, you know, habitats like that, which can just absorb the energy of river systems um, so it's a, it's a whole package of measures, really. There's no kind of one silver bullet when it comes to um, natural solutions. But if, if you take them together from the source of a river out to the sea, essentially they can make a big difference to, to our own way of life. They can make a difference to the cleanliness of our rivers, can they? Well, they can make a difference. They won't solve it on their own. If water companies are still you know, allowed to pump out sewage from housing developments, for instance, or if farmers don't have the support they need to reduce the fertilizers that they put onto the fields you know essentially no amount of nature-based solutions is going to absorb all of that um, pollution so you know it's, as well as encouraging nature to help it's to help us we also need these kind of strong policies and regulations and, and targets on these different industries to make sure that they're also doing the right thing what could government be doing differently is it legislation is it regulation is it a better enforcement of what already exists yeah i'm a bit of a policy geek where i work in wwf um i often talk a lot of, to other people about uh, the importance of nitrogen in some of this story so nitrogen is a essentially it's a, a system in the same way that carbon is a system or water is a system it's a building block for life. It's essential to food production. So, for example, you know, you look at the the Wye and the Usk rivers, and you look at all the pollution that's coming out of the intensive um, chicken farming that's going on there. Essentially, all of that is having really big impacts on climate, water, air, and nature together. But on the flip side, if we could actually 
you know, promote nitrogen as an issue and set a, a set of nitrogen budgets, for example, in the same way that the Climate Change Committee set carbon budgets, then we'd not just be tackling climate change, but we'd also be improving water quality. We'd also be improving air health. We'd also be stopping um, premature deaths from you know, toxic air pollution. So when it comes to regulation, we need to make sure that um, you know, water companies and, and housing developers and, and other industries are being held to account for the outputs that they're producing. We also need to be supporting our farmers to transition to what I would call more regenerative farming methods. So actually, again, using nature to, to help us produce food. So that's things like um, reducing our amount of fertilizers, uh, reducing our amount of livestock manure, things like that. And there's lots of really cool technology that's already helping farmers to do that. So you know, you have drones that fly over fields and analyze the soil, and you can make like really miniature additions to to help uh, grow your crops. So you don't need to just blanket crops with with fertilizers in the same way that you used to. So if they just have the advice and the support uh, and the I suppose the underlying um, regulations to help them do the right thing. We could really scale up a lot of these solutions that we know already exist. What level of awareness of this issue is there amongst um, farmers, and and uh, what what level of will exists to do something about it? Yeah, I, I think there is a general awareness. Um, you know, farmers are not a homogenous group by any means, and the issues that farmers deal with vary. Whether you're talking about the dairy sector or the or growing fruit and vegetables. I would say there's rising awareness that, especially in the context of things like rising costs in you know, inputs, we need to start transitioning to a more regenerative future. Lots of farmers want to do the right thing, but essentially they're locked into a, a system at the moment where they don't have a lot of power in negotiating with supply chains. They're forced to produce a very narrow set of food to very, I suppose, to very low standards. Um, and so they essentially, I don't think they probably feel that they would be fairly rewarded for taking those initial steps. We also need that um, support in terms of the softer advice, because there's no better way for farmers to take up some of these methods than by learning from other farmers who are already doing it and saving money. Can we find inspiration from other countries, Alec? Who, who, who's doing, you know, if you had a kind of river top of the pops, who's top of the pops? I spent uh, quite a long time in in France uh, over the years, and it's really interesting to see that you know they've got a lot of really clean rivers when it comes to designated swimming areas. So they've got, I think, roughly around twelve hundred designated safe spots for river swimming in France, and we've got one. Got one. We've got one. Yeah, which uh, was designated, I think, last year up in Yorkshire. Um, and even then for that area, the water quality was then, you know, um, officially classified as poor quality. Just to explain that. We have a process to designate healthy rivers and coasts and swimming areas for people to go swimming safely. And yeah, it turns out that although we have uh, a fair few number of designated coastal bathing waters, um, we only actually have one area, which is a river, which is officially designated as a, um, a safe bathing water area. That seems extraordinary. France has 1,200. France has, I think, about 1,200. Germany has even more than that. It, does that say something about the quality of the river or does it, the, the cleanliness of the river, or, or is there some other sort of reason for that? I mean, have we just not got around to doing this designation? I would suggest that it's a combination, ultimately, of the water quality being so much better because they have addressed some of these issues at the source um, so they've basically, I suppose, worked with uh, the water companies and the developers and yeah. industries and agriculture to... That's quite a shocking fact, Jeff, isn't it? Yeah, but do you not feel like we hear shocking facts like that all the time? Maybe. There are examples of amazing rivers and watercourses, even in the UK, where they might not be designated as officially right. safe for sp swimming. The water quality is still pretty good. Well, that's what I was wondering, yeah. I mean, it's 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 just that they have to set quite a high standard to allow people to safely, you know, right. swim in them. But even so, that's that's really the target that we should be aiming for. Yeah, yeah, Shouldn't yeah. It? Ultimately, it'd be great if every river was safe for people Definitely. to have a, a dip in. 
what can we do personally? I don't just mean me and him. I mean our listeners as well. Um, how can we get involved in keeping our rivers clean? Well, firstly, I would say join a organisation or a group where you live. Join a, a movement. Um, you know the the movements around um, campaigning against sewage pollution have been you know really inspirational for me. You know, and I've worked on some of these issues for quite a while and it's really boosted my enthusiasm to hear how people across the country have been affected by the the water quality where they live is there a good example of that alec that you could give our listeners if you look down in the sort of west sussex coast around or east sussex coast around brighton and uh, hove and you know you've got some really strong sea swimming clubs that you know have been active a lot on these issues for a number of years the example that i mentioned around ilkley and yorkshire the kind of the the lone um, star when it comes to uh, river quality swimming they had a really strong local campaign to try and get that designated in the first place so there's lots of really good organizations i would say yeah, get out find your local river find your patch go walking on it um i'm sure that you know walk for a lot of people the idea of walking along river streams and banks evokes a lot of memories for people um from either from their childhood or uh, from stories wind in the willows wind in the willows yeah it's very kind of culturally and socially and historically significant part of our countryside i was quite moved by chris packham recently he w- he did a show where he rewalked the part of the river itchin that he used to, used to as a child um and i don't think he even he expected the kind of memories to be flooded flooding back that he um, was confronted with even where i live here in lewisham there's been an amazing campaign to restore the River Ravensbourne, which is a, a, a smaller river here in southeast London. There's a great one near us in North London, the yeah. New River. You see tortoises on it at certain times of year that have been introduced. Because um, I guess if you, you live in a city like London, you just think of the Thames or Manchester, the Irwell. But there are all these small rivers and tributaries as well. Yeah, all these all these hidden like, waterways, which are almost like nature corridors and you know, green spaces for people to enjoy. Well, Alec, we asked you for optimism, and I think there's plenty in there. I mean, uh, a slight cause for despair in hearing there's only one safe swimming spot, but lots to think about, and as I say, lots of uh, cause to feel positive. Alec Taylor from WWF, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Pleasure. Well, what did you think about rivers, apart from the fact that clearly we need to swim together in the one that is authorised. It's really given me a taste for uh, going and hanging out on a on a riverbank. I don't don't know if I'll be actually getting in the river anytime soon. You're more the sort of sweaty cheese sandwich on the riverbank. I don't mean you are a sweaty cheese sandwich, <laughs> but eating the sweaty cheese sandwich. I think so. Yeah, I really enjoyed an episode with lots of uh, words and phrases like algal sludge and leaky dams and swales. Just from a pure expanding my river vocabulary point of view, it was very satisfying. And also felt like taking them, in joking apart, taking them seriously mm. and sort of thinking seriously about well, what are the reasons why our rivers are polluted? What are we going to do about them sort of across the board? Um, seems sort of incredibly important and, and needs to be sort of put high up the agenda. Really interesting also was the sort of campaigners about rivers, the people who are I'm sorry to go back to wild swimming, but the people who have sort of put rivers on the agenda. I mean, it's quite interesting. There's been legal cases about rivers, you know, big fine for one of the water companies, like record fine for one of the water companies in terms of river pollution. Then there's the campaigners who've really put it on the agenda and sort of, you know, shown that, you know, we're not sort of powerless. We're not just in the hands of, I mean, obviously government, you know, is the regulation by government is absolutely crucial, but that campaigners have sort of, really put it up the agenda. So I think it does show, it's one of these episodes, it does show that, yes, the situation isn't great, but we can do things about it. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Oh, we're in the outro. And I have news to report, which is, I mentioned Dylan, fantastic dog from down the street. I've sent you the picture. 
of me and Dylan. It's a beautiful picture, by the way. He is a handsome boy. And I can't remember the last time I saw you looking so serene. I think he's having a very good effect on your blood pressure, your mental well-being. Well, we're having an extended period with Dylan. Well, a couple of days, a, a weekend. He's having a weekend visit. Are you going to take him swimming? Uh, I, I see dogs swimming on Hampstead Heath. Can I just ask, he eats rather a lot. I mean, no, don't, I don't mean he eats rather a lot of the food he's supposed to eat. He kind of, when you're out on the street, he's constantly trying to find sort of food. Is that what, that's what dogs do, isn't it? Yeah, I wouldn't think too much about where uh, dogs' noses and mouths end up. He's got a very good sense of smell. Yeah, fa- famously, that's a, a trait. 10,000 times better than ours or something? Yeah. Anyway, he's so sweet, honestly. Where is he sleeping? Uh, in his dog basket. You've got boundaries. There are apparently boundaries. I'm quite, I'm quite a sort of non-boundaries person on this. Me too. Me too. I know, but I've already been told off for that. I'll report back on Dylan. Can I thank our guests? Please do. Alistair Chisholm, Christine Colvin, and Alec Taylor. Emma Caution produces all the audio for our podcast. Thank you to Emma and thank you to Joe Kenyon from Goldfish, who has provided all the research and backup and guest booking. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the idents. Ed Seed composed the music. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been River Deep. He's been Mountain High. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.